All right, we're returning to our catechetical series, and we're going to pick up kind of where we left off uh, last time that we met. Um, I know that we kind of forget what goes on from week to week. Sometimes I even get to the point where I can't remember hardly, what did I preach on last week? And I thought, if it's that bad for me, it must be for also for the congregation. So um, remember last time that we met, we, we looked at a very interesting Old Testament story on a particular man named Uzzah. Remember that? He reached out his hand, his soiled human hands and sinful hands upon the Ark of the Covenant, and God struck him down dead. And it's quite an abrupt story, especially for someone who's unfamiliar with the Bible. It's like, wow, you know, did God wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Well, that was just an expression of not only the holiness of God, but the justice of God. And we pick up on this whole theme of the justice of God, and I'll tell you why. It's because you will never understand to a significant degree the love and the mercy of God that's expressed in Christ until you first understand three things, God's holiness, God's righteousness, and his justice. And we're going to pick up on that theme and underscore that by reading together Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're in the Old Testament this afternoon. Isaiah 6, I'm going to read the first seven verses. The passage is also above me on the overhead and then... I'm going to draw your attention to words of a document that we've been considering together in this series called the Heidelberg Catechism, Instruction for Our Faith. We're going to consider question and answers 12 through 15. But first, and most importantly, the scriptures. So join with me, if you would, in looking at that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Catch that, kids? Bible's here describing angels, seraphim. What's seraphim? I'll explain that a little bit later on. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We're going to end our reading at that point. I want to draw your attention now to uh, question and answers 12 through 15. You know, normally what we do here is um, I read the question, together we recite the answer. I like to shake things up a little bit, do things not always in the same way, so we're going to switch it around. What we're going to do is you and I together are going to read the question, and then I will give the answer. So, question 12, let's say together. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, How can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment 
either by ourselves or through another. Can we, by ourselves, make this payment? Answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? The answer is no. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And then finally, let's say together, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. Such is the gospel Okay, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ. And actually, what we are confessing here, extremely important, and it gets at the very fundamentals of doctrines that we should not only know and believe, but these are actually fundamental truths that we confess together that are absolutely pivotal for those whom God may open doors for us to speak to. And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, and you're going to continue hearing me say this, that number one, we need to realize that there are people outside of our tradition, in Protestant circles and evangelical circles, who are seeing the importance of catechetical instruction. It's very easy. I think sometimes for those of us who grew up with this, this document thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, we, we, we sometimes get a, a sour taste in our mouths and while we're kind of going south with it, people are going north with it. They're going like, I never knew you had this before. And I, I've never, when, when they discover it, they go like, where you been all my life? And so it's really my personal desire, and I hope it's our desire at Pathway to just kind of get back to making this, this document live and helping us to get grounded in the things that we need to know ourselves, but also for the sake of uh, other people. Now, speaking of that, Let's um, try to imagine something. Let's say, and I think I brought this out a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. Let's say the opportunity is given to you, maybe with a friend, somebody that you know, somebody that you've developed a relationship with, that uh, God has given you the opportunity to share the basics of the Christian faith with them. And I'm wondering how you would begin doing that. You know, let's say it's set up, and the guy, the guy or the woman says, you know, I, I, I don't really know much about the Christian faith. Can you teach me? Where would you begin? And, and basically, having that opportunity, uh, myself on a number of occasions, I think I've explained this to you before, but in case you weren't here when I have explained it, I usually tend to, to develop a really open relationship first, and a relationship of trust. That's, that's a very important thing. And then secondly, what I do is I begin with diagnostic questions, revolving around origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You know, like, uh, how, did, how did we all get here? Who are we? And why are we here? How should we live? What happens when we die? Because people wonder about these things. So I deal with those things for a little while. Maybe we deal with a matter relating to the existence of God, because there's no use talking about God unless He exists. But usually, early on in the conversation, as you get into exactly who God is and why we need Him, you're going to have to be dealing with three fundamental attributes of God. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God. 
Because unless you lay those things out in a very simple way, the person that you're talking to will never really understand why they need Jesus. So what do we mean when we talk about the holiness of God? Now, I want you to listen carefully to these things and the rest of the sermon, because after the sermon, we're going to have just maybe five minutes of discussion time, and we're going to do a little bit of review. Okay? So what do we mean by the holy? What do we, say, what do we mean when we say God is holy? As we sing about it, I call to worship, dwelt with the holiness of God in Psalm 99. We read about the holiness of God here in Isaiah 6, and we read about the holiness of God well, just throughout the scriptures. So what do we mean that God is holy? When we say that God is holy, we say, first of all, that God as creator is distinguished from all that is creaturely. And also this, we're saying that God as a holy God is actually separate, not just distinguished, but he's separate from all that is unholy, all that is sinful, all that is ethical, dirty. God is holy, we are not. God is the creator, we are the creature. Fundamental Christian theology. Secondly, we say that God is righteous, and that means that as a holy God, God conforms to his own will, a will that he has displayed for us. What we do in our morning worship services, not every Sunday, but on a number of Sundays, we read the Ten Commandments together as a summary of the will of God for us. God always lives in line with his will. He never violates his will. He always conforms to it, unlike you and me, right? God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. What does that mean? That God, as a holy and righteous God, must give what is unholy, what is sinful in us. He gives it what it's due, and what is sin due, according to the Bible. And also, according to this document that we read together. God's justice requires that actually, and here's a reality that people don't like to hear, but it's true. As a holy and righteous God, God must punish sin. All that is unholy in this life, and not just in this life, but in the life to come. Now, why do I take time with that? Because we're setting the stage for us all, but including those who we speak to, to say to themselves, well, my goodness, if that is true, then what am I going to do? How can I get up from under this? How can this sin be eradicated so I can be in right standing with God? How, 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 how can I pay for this sin in such a way that I don't have to be punished, but I can be received by God? What do I do? Can you and I pay for this sin? No. Can any other creature that God made on this earth pay for sin? No. Why not? Well, look at that. Well, then, how can the sin be paid for? Where can that answer be found? You and me? Any other creature? No. That answer can only be found in God. God has to be the one who supplies the answer to the sin problem. Fundamental Christian belief. Okay? Now, take a look at the passage. We read here in our passage that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. So kids, what's happening here is that the prophet Isaiah is receiving a vision. It's like a dream while you're awake. And in this dream or in this vision, he sees what we call the throne room of God. And he sees a display of God as the holy and great king. This happens 
And here's where we get the historical context here. This happens during the reign of a man named King Uzziah. Now, very quickly, King Uzziah was rather young when he became king. He was only 16. Can you imagine that? Becoming a king when you're 16? Reigned, reigned for 52 years. Long time. And as far as the Israelite kings go, he was, he was generally, a, well, generally a good king. And because he was generally a good king for many years, God blessed him. But you know what happens when you're, when you're blessed over an extended period of time? What happens is you become both presumptuous and sometimes proud. Kids, presumptuous means where you think, oh, God's good to me, things are going well in my life, and you just kind of take that for granted, and you get a little bit sloppy in your spirituality. But sometimes when you're blessed by God and you're presumptuous, you can also become a bit proud. And that's what happened to King Uzziah. And here's an here's a example of his pride. One day, kids, he actually went into the temple place of worship and he offered a sacrifice to God. You go, isn't that a good thing? And he answers, no, because you see, in the Old Testament, God gave that prerogative or that right to the priest, not to the king. So really what he was doing is he was just taking upon himself to do something that he shouldn't have been doing and God struck him down for that in the way, in this way, God made him a leper, and he was a leper with serious skin disease until the day that he died. Here's a simple point. Just as Uzzah, when he reached out his hand upon the Ark of the Covenant, so too with Uzziah when he offered that sacrifice that he shouldn't, you don't trifle with the Holy God. Man, we live in a world that, that takes hardly any consideration of the fact that God is holy. I mean, how many, how many people, how, maybe some of us, how many of us really understand how holy God is? You don't trifle with God. Isaiah found that out. As you go in this passage, Isaiah sees this vision. Now, kids, this is what Isaiah sees. He looks and he sees something that, that we don't see. He sees the throne room of God. He's God is the great king, and the train, the Bible says, of his robe, that is the edge of his, of his robe, fill out this throne room, and it, that, that's a way of saying God is powerful, and God is majestic, God is great. And so this is, this is what Isaiah actually sees before him, and, and then when you go on to take a look at the passage, you see that there are angels here, right? And the angels are above the throne of God. And what are these angels called? They're called seraphim. Seraphim. You say, what are seraphim? Well, you know what? We just don't know much about these angels because this is the only place in the Bible where they're mentioned. Now, there are, there are two classes of angels in the Bible, right? Two main classes. You've got cherubim, you've got seraphim. Cherubim reveal the power and the majesty of God, and seraphim sing God's praises and they do his bidding. The angels carry out what God wants them. They, they take their missions from God, right? So you have these seraphim. And so they're praising God and they're calling out to one another, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But the word seraph from seraphim, and anytime you read in the, if you've got your English Bible and you read through it from the Old Testament, you get this em ending, that's, that's a Hebrew ending, it's a plural ending. 
So a singular seraph is just called a seraph, but if you want to talk about many angels, many seraphs is seraphim, same thing with cherubim, okay? And these seraph, seraphim are the ones who are just mentioned here in all the Bible, and they are the most noble of angels. And you take a look at these angels, and how are they described? They're described as, and would that we could just see one once, right? Six-winged creatures. With two wings, they fly. With two wings, in the presence of God, they cover their face. And with two wings, they cover their feet. Now, why do they do that? Well, because God is holy. So, so two wings, they fly. They do the bidding of God. But with two wings, try to imagine this, they're like this. Because the holiness of God is so great, it's so brilliant. But also what they do is they cover their feet. And you wonder, why do they cover their feet? See where they cover their, they're like covering their eyes, you know, shielding themselves. But why cover their feet? And perhaps we get an answer to that from from the book of Exodus, where, where Moses confronts God who is in a, remember the story of burning bush. And God says to Moses in the burning bush, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it says, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God says two things to Moses. Take off your sandals, take off your footwear, you're standing on holy ground. And Moses, God was so holy that Moses had the shield like this. Now, isn't it interesting that you have a parallel in this passage with the angels? Moses shields his face. He doesn't necessarily cover his feet, but he takes off his sandals. And what you have with the angels is a reference to the feet, and you have the reference to the eyes. The point is that God's holiness is so brilliant that both of them must shield themselves from this, from this holy God. Only God is perfectly and intensely holy. The angels recognize this, and this is why they, they cry out to one another. We read in verse 6, and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, full, the whole earth is full of His glory. Remember this, because I'm going to ask you about this. Glory. The Hebrew, kavod. And the, at the very heart of the word kavod, the very heart of the word glory is weight. We don't serve God light. Serve a weighty and substantive God. Therefore, we don't treat him lightly. Right? But these angels are crawling out. They're, they're calling out antiphonally to one another. Kind of what we're going to do in our final song, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sing in rounds. In a sense, we're, I don't know if we're calling out to one another, but there's this, this kind of back and forth that we sing to each other upon occasion. Actually, there's, it's kind of rooted in the Bible. Okay? So anyway, you have these angels, and they're crying out, Three things, three, uh, this attribute of God, the preeminent attribute of God, the holy, holy, holy. And I think I said this last time we were together, but I'll say it again. This is the only attribute in the Bible that's mentioned three times in a row. So you never see in the Bible, though God is love, 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 love. Or do you see regarding the wrath of God, wrath, wrath, wrath. But holy, holy, holy to underscore to us 
if we didn't get it the first, second, or third time, the God whom we serve is different than who we are. He is holy. Isaiah himself understands this in a very profound way. In fact, he understands it so well that he confesses his own unholiness. Verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. When you, when you hear that word woe, and by the way, Jesus pronounces woe in Matthew 23 upon the Pharisees. That's what we call a, a curse, a self-imposed curse in, in, in this case, a covenantal curse. So Isaiah is saying, woe is me. Like, I'm an accursed man. I'm in the presence of a holy God. Woe is me for, he says, I am lost for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Other translations, probably better translations, put it like this. Um, woe is me, for I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's like Isaiah, just like you and I, we don't understand really who we are as individuals who are unholy before a holy God until we actually compare ourselves with God. That's why when you talk with people about the gospel, when you talk to people about the Christian faith, they're never going to really know who they are before the face of God unless you begin with God. And all of a sudden, when you compare yourself with God, then all of a sudden you realize, oh man, I'm, I'm in bad straits. I'm in bad straits. So he says, I am, I'm, I'm undone, Isaiah says. I recognize who I am. And, and really, he's in a sense, he's unraveling. He's disintegrating. It's like, it's like taking a thread from my coat and keep going like this, and what happens to the coat? It just starts unraveling and goes into nothing. And that's the way Isaiah feels before a holy God. Because he recognizes, again, that he is unclean. That's the term that's easier. Unholy, sinful. And that's a bad thing. That's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a bad place to be, and I'll tell you why. Number one, it's because sin is an offense to a holy God. You know, God's not the kind of God that goes, well, you know what, I, I realize I made you in a different way, but unfortunately you're headed south, and it's not a good thing, but I know you're doing your best. A lot of people think that, but that's not, that's not the teaching of the Bible regarding God. Sin is a deep, deep offense to God, and secondly, um, God as a holy and righteous God is also a just God, and as a just God, he has to punish sin. He's obligated to punish sin. God is not obligated to show mercy. Okay? Thankfully, he does. But he is obligated, as an extension of his holiness and righteousness, to punish sin, as the Catechism says, in this life as well as the life to come. So I, get you, I bring you back to the original question that we all have to ask ourselves, or we ask those who, who, are, who, are, who we're sharing the faith with, okay, what are we going to do about this? This is a bad situation, and if that's what we face, punishment in this life as well as the life to come, how can we get up from under this? How can we pay for this? How can we get back to, to God's good graces? That's where I want to draw your attention. Can you put on the, the Heidelberg here just a moment? There you go. Okay. I want to walk through this with you. 
Question 12. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and once again be received into God's favor? And the answer is, God demands that His justice be satisfied. That's why I said God is obligated to deal with our sin as a just God. He's not obligated toward mercy, though He is, though He does give us that. But He's obligated to show justice. So that justice has to be satisfied. Therefore, we have to make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Okay. Now, as you go through this document, it's a great teaching document because it's very logical and progressive. One thing leads to another. So it says, okay, we got to pay for this sin either by ourselves or by another. Naturally, we ask ourselves, well, can we do it? Can we ourselves pay for it? Answer is no. In fact, not just no, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt, our debt to God. We got a sin debt that just keeps growing and growing and growing. It's like the, it's like, it's like the government debt. You know, it just goes and on and on. Every year it gets worse, right? That's the way it is with our sin. That's why. We, so, so basically, we can't pay for our own sin because we're sinners. Sinners can't pay for fellow sinners. We're we're all in the same boat together. 14, how about this? Trying to get up from under this, this just penalty of God. Can any mere creature pay for us? How about somebody else, another creature? And the answer is no. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Now, what's interesting is we see this kind of played out in our passage. Can we pay for our sin? We're like, no, we're like Isaiah. We're unclean. We're sinful. We can't pay for each other. We're unqualified. Oh, how about another creature? How about an angel? Now, kids, remember that angels, like the seraphim, very noble, right? Angels, though, though they are without sin, are still creatures. God made them. So, angels themselves, while holy while sinless still are not qualified to pay for our sin. Why is that? Because they're still creatures. And as a creature, as the catechism notes, God's wrath upon sin is so, so great that no creature would be able to withstand the wrath of God upon that sin. They'd be obliterated. So, can we pay for sin? Nope. Check that one off. Can any other creature pay for that sin? Nope. Not even angels. Then the catechism's leading us on, asking this question, well, then who can? Who can? What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? Here's the answer. One who is true and righteous man, human sin, so someone who is human must pay for that sin, and yet one who is more powerful than all creatures so that they can sustain the wrath of God. That is, one who is at the same time, as it says, true God. So what we're really doing is we're asking ourselves the question, who really is qualified to deal with the sin problem in the world and in our lives? It ain't you and me. It ain't the angels. It's one who God himself supplies. Who is that? You know what's interesting in this document at this point? The name's not given, not yet, teasing us, 
bringing us along. You ever think of the catechism in that way? Teases us, brings us along bit by bit by bit, logically, progressively. It's a great document that way. All right. Well, here we go. Meanwhile, Isaiah is unraveling. He's coming apart the seams. I want to, I want to start drawing to a close with this because I want you to notice how in line with the catechism, which lines itself up with the Bible, it's leading us by the hand, someone who's going to, to deal with the sin. God himself has to supply the answer. And that's what we see here. Verse 6. And one of the seraphim, after Isaiah is unraveling, right? One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Oh, beautiful words. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Notice those words. Isaiah stands guilty before God. But through that coal from an altar that touches his lips and cleanses him, says, now your guilt is taken away. That is, your guilty standing before God, but also the guilt that you feel inside when you know that you've offended God. So now, good news, guilt's taken away. More than that, your sin is atoned for. Atonement means a covering for sin. Covering for sin. So more good news. Let me ask you this as we start drawing to a close. Where is or what is the source of this cleansing of Isaiah? What's the source? Is it Isaiah? Nope. Is it an angel? Maybe you say, yeah, because it's the angel who with tongs takes a coal and goes to Isaiah and cleanses him. No, 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 no. The angel is merely a messenger. What is the source of redemption? What is the source of rescue? It's the altar. Altar. Kids know what an altar is? An altar is where sacrifices are made. You know your Bibles? You know it in the Old Testament? In the Bible, you had the tabernacle, and then you had the temple as a place of worship. And in the holy place, there was what was called a bronze altar. And they were offered animal sacrifices on that altar. And what those animals were is they were substitutes so that rather than people having to pay for their own sin, that animal paid for the sin and the blood was shed and the animal died. That animal paid the price. And you think about it in the Old Testament, animal after animal after animal the shit was killed. Blood after gallon of blood after gallon of blood shed, all of that. What did, what did all those animals point to? What did all that blood point to? What did all that death point to? All the sacrifices on the altar were designed to take us by the hand and lead us forward. The one who is now called our altar, the one who the catechism describes as the one who is true and righteous man. Who is that? This document doesn't say at this point, but we know him to be Jesus. This is why Christians are always talking about Jesus, why Christians are always talking about our need for Jesus, because we all need someone to help us to deal with the sin problem 
and reconcile us to a holy God. That's why we gather together. That's why we praise God every week. We praise Him for the Son of God, Jesus, who came to deal with our sin problem, which should be our response, whoever we are, whatever our background, to recognize, number one, that sin is a problem. Number two, as sinners, we are in a problem state. Number three, we are all in need of a payment for our sin. And fourthly, who is the one who pays for that sin? It is Jesus. How do we make Jesus our own? By confessing our sins and asking God to forgive us in Jesus' name. Embrace him in faith and trusting our lives to him and walking with him all the days of our lives. It applies to us. Remember some of these things when God gives you an opportunity, Lord willing, in the future, maybe even now, to share your faith, the basics of the gospel, with those in this world who need it and who need to be restored to God. Okay? Let's pray together, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask a few questions, and then we're going to sing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you yourself have supplied the answer to our dilemma, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, where would we be without your son? Where would we be without your love and your own sacrifice in giving your one and only son for us? What a beautiful expression of love and mercy and care. Lord, we are humbled. We are humbled. We thank you for this gift. We pray, O oh Lord, that this may instill in us just a really heartfelt desire to give our lives over to Christ, to rest in him and glory in him all the days of our lives. God, we pray for this, for our children, for our grandchildren, for each of us individually. Oh God, grant that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.